listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the book of Acts, how Christians live. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on couragematters.com. Today, what I want to focus on is something that you can really sink your teeth into. You can really invest yourself in what we're going to look at in the scriptures today, and I'm going to come at it from a certain angle that I'm just going to disclose to you right now. How about that? Full disclosure. I'm going to tell you ahead of time the angle that I'm coming at when addressing this remaining chunk of Acts chapter 13. Here it is. Are you ready? Why is it that you didn't sound like you were ready for that? Are we ready? This book was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that you could get practical insights from it today. Here's the angle that I'm going to come at from the scriptures in this particular passage. You need to know what a truly saved person looks like in the daily ins and outs of life. You need to know what a truly saved, spirit-filled person does with the remaining days in their life. What does a truly saved, spirit-filled person do with the remainder of their life? That's what this passage is about. This is what will speak to you. How does a saved, spirit-filled person live? Remember, I do not believe, and neither should you, I do not believe that the Bible is a book of exceptions as much as it is a book of examples of how a real believer, how a spirit-filled believer lives for Jesus Christ. And this section of scripture teaches us that. You know, there's coming a day when you won't have any more days. Just this past week, my wife and two sons were driving in their car on Yellow Church Road. And a 20-year-old driving in his car coming in the opposite direction, racing after enjoying some cheap tacos at Taco Bell. They were racing and he swerved over the line in what was bound to be a head-on collision. He swerved at the last second and fishtailed, hitting the front driver's side quarter panel, sending my wife off the road. He rolled his car, not once or twice, six times. When the state trooper arrived at the scene and this 20-year-old with tremendous integrity, who's a follower of Jesus, just was doing something silly. We have all done silly things, haven't we? Fessed up and admitted that he was deeply sorry for what he did. The state trooper said, you should be dead. And if it were a head-on collision, it might not have just been him that was dead. You don't know how much more time you have in life. Therefore, make the most of the remaining time in your life as a true believer filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 13, verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions, Paul got saved, Acts chapter 9, and now he has followers as they're following Jesus. This thing grows. It is about a movement of God. Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's John Mark. We'll read more about him in Acts chapter 15. 
But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt, and with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. Remember the 400 years in captivity where the people, the Jewish people, the Hebrews, were oppressed by the Egyptians, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Notice the literal understanding of Scripture that the Apostle Paul has. He's taking the literal timetable as presented in the Old Testament. Now, if that's good enough for Paul, who was a Pharisee, now an apostle, it should be good enough for you and for me. What we're seeing in the scripture is the apostle taking the literal interpretation of scripture and not saying that it was figurative, not saying that it was allegory, but that these were literal historic events. So you can take that, you can put it in your back pocket, and you can say, hey, I'm on solid ground if I do the same thing. If Paul did it, you can do it. He's doing it as an example. Verse 22, and when he had removed him, when God had removed Saul, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior as he promised. We're going to come back to that in a little while. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he, I'm not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, referring to the Old Testament, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him, Jesus, no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, remember Jesus was not murdered, he gave his life as a sacrifice in fulfillment with the Old Testament scriptures, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree, the cross, and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Why is the resurrection of Jesus so significant? Because it is God the Father's statement of approval of the satisfactory sacrifice of Jesus to be the substitute for your sin and for mine and for the sins of everybody on the earth, for all those who have accepted that sacrifice as the gift from Almighty God. See, before the resurrection, you look at it this way. All of heaven, all of earth, everything under the earth, all of creation, <gasps> holding its breath, wondering, what does it mean? 
What's the significance of the crucifixion? Without the resurrection, we wouldn't have a verdict. And so the resurrection is God the Father's verdict that what Jesus did on the cross and the identity of Jesus being sinless as a sacrifice for you and me, that was acceptable to God the Father. That's the whole purpose of the resurrection, that death has no power over Jesus. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, once you give your life to Jesus Christ, death has no power over you. Sin has no power over you. That's the whole point, that Jesus is bigger than any and every sin that you might have committed, you might be in the process of committing now, so come to your senses and knock it off. Or any sin you might be temporarily out of your mind to commit in the future. That's what sin really is when you understand your position in Christ, when you understand all that God has done for you in Christ, all that God went through in Christ. Anybody who goes on sinning is just out of their mind. You're out of your mind. You have temporary insanity to do that. And sin never delivers what it promises. Haven't you found that to be the case? Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It makes you think, wow, if I pursue happiness and peace and satisfaction and fulfillment apart from God, I'll get it. But then when you try it, <laughs> you realize it wasn't all it was presented to be. But what we find out in Christ, what I have found out is that in some miraculous way, as I get older in Christ, I realize that it's almost as if in Christ, God has under-promised, follow me on this one, and over-delivered. The longer I'm in Christ, the more I realize that God did above and beyond exceedingly what I could dream or imagine. He not only forgave me of all my sins, not only forgives you of all of your sins, but also gives you a position of authority, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, as Ephesians chapter two says. Write that down, Ephesians chapter two. God didn't just have to save you, but he also seats you with Christ in a position of authority over death and over sin and over every principality and power, every demonic entity that could be thrown at you that you could come across in the course of this life. So if you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, sin is beneath you. All of your enemies are beneath you. So how about if you start living even more so like that seated, forgiven partner with the Lord God himself who's been called by God to go into the world, make disciples, and be salt and light. That's what it's about. God rescues us and sets us on a mission to be partners with him to change this world. Haven't you noticed that the world needs a lot of changing these days? The world needs a lot of changing these days, and it's courtesy of God Almighty through your hands and feet and your mouth and your money and your resources, everything about you, you get saved and set apart, saved and set apart to join God in his great kingdom agenda. God could have chosen to do it on his own, could have just involved angels to do that, but he didn't choose that exclusively, even though angels are part of his plan. He has human beings, mere mortals, forgiven. People with a past, with a tremendously bright future, through the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Beautiful. 
It's amazing what God is doing in the course of your life. It's amazing what God wants to do in the course of your life and in our lives together. And we're seeing how God can transform a life right here with the Apostle Paul's life. He is truly saved, truly filled with the Holy Spirit, and truly busy for God in a great way. So what Paul is doing here, verse 31 as we continue, he's laying out the redemptive plan of God presented in the Old Testament, fulfilled with John the Baptist, fulfilled with Jesus. That's what he's laying out. He's giving them a history of salvation, a history lesson of all that God has done leading up to the person and the works of the revealed Messiah. The Messiah had a face, he has a face, he has a name, he stood a certain height on this earth, stretched out his arms in full expression of love and judgment simultaneously on the cross where sin was judged and love was expressed. His name is Jesus and he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. And the Apostle Paul, being very familiar with the Old Testament, that recovering Pharisee is giving the people a lesson in history of redemption and salvation culminating, wrapped up in the person and the works of Jesus. That's what he's doing here. So in verse 31, in many days, Jesus, for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are now his witnesses to the people. We would have still been alive, many of them during that time. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled. See, the Old Testament, they were looking forward to the fulfillment. Paul is teaching to them that now there's no more looking forward to it. It has been fulfilled in Jesus. It's been fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, verse 7. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Isaiah 55, verse 3. Therefore, he says also in another Psalm, Psalm 16, 10, you will not let your holy one see corruption or decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, or he died, and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. His body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption, reference to Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. This is an important thing for us to remember again. If the Jewish people who had the law, all of the Old Testament and the 613 commands, don't do this, do that, found in the Old Testament, if adhering to the law could not save a person, think about how ridiculous it is to set your own standard of righteousness thinking that if I do these things and don't do those things, God's going to look favorably upon me and save me. Listen, if the law that God gave, the purpose of the law was not to save anyone, that was not the purpose. It was, the purpose of it was to help people become aware of their own sin, that we fall short of the standard of God. If you couldn't be saved by adhering to the law, 
What makes us think in the 21st century that we could create some other standard on top of the law that would be more righteous than God's standard of perfection? The purpose of the law was to help us to become conscious and aware that we need somebody other than ourselves to rescue us. And that's what Paul is presenting here. He is found in Jesus the Messiah. We say Jesus Christ. That's what he's leading the people to here, to the feet of Jesus. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about, verse 41. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perished, for I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. This is from Isaiah 29, verse 14. Notice how Paul is using the Old Testament in the proclamation of Jesus, that he's using it to help them understand that Jesus is found throughout the Old Testament. This is why when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus and he appears to those two disciples, he teaches them from the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, everything that was written about him. This is not exhaustive. These aren't the only passages that Paul is using here. They're not the only passages that refer to the Messiah. They're a sampling in the same way that we see Peter doing it in Acts chapter two. They're a sampling of how all of the Old Testament is a schoolmaster. It's a compass. It's a roadmap pointing everybody to one individual, Jesus, who would be a descendant from Abraham, who would be a descendant from David, as we're going to see, who would be the promised, appointed, anointed Savior. That's what he's presenting here in a very detailed way. Verse 42, as they went out, the people begged, look at the, the hunger and the intrigue, they begged that these things might be told to them on the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. If you're really following Jesus, people are going to follow you, and then that gives you an opportunity to point them beyond you to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the rescuer, the savior that they need or that they have. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Amazing how good news travels fast. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly. Notice they don't sit down, they don't shut up. They continue to speak out boldly. One of the characteristics of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is filled with the Holy Spirit, you don't count out, you don't give in to peer pressure. You understand that the power of God is the one that we lean upon. And we stand up and we speak out because we have the words of eternal life, okay? Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth, Isaiah 49 verse six. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It's amazing. There's a sigh of relief among the Gentiles. You mean God is concerned about us too? You better believe it. For God so loved the world the world, 
the whole world, black people, white people, yellow people, red people, old people, young people, poor people, rich people, God loved the world so much, everybody in the world, that he gave his one and only uniquely brought forth son, Jesus, that whoever, people from every part of the world, people who have sinned in gross ways, people who have sinned in minor ways, people who understand that there's no such thing as sinning more grossly or less grossly, we're all sinners in need of a savior. Anybody who believes in Jesus can have the forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life and embrace the vision and the mission of God, anybody. And so the Gentiles are breathing this sigh of relief. (sighs) Wow, even us, and it could be you today, even you. Even you, if you think your sin isn't important, or if you think your sin is so significant that God could never forgive you, the truth is, when Jesus said it's finished, when he hung on the cross, among his last words, He really meant what he said and said what he meant. The full payment for every single one of your sins was nailed to that cross on the one who was without sin. Jesus took your place. So stop trying to tell Jesus that your sin is bigger than the cross. It isn't. There is nothing in your past that is too big for this, for the sacrificial substitution sacrifice of Jesus in your place. Verse 49, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So a firestorm that's begun here. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up by persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet. Matthew 10, 14, Jesus tells them, people don't listen, shake off the dust of your feet. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples wrung their hands in fear and trepidation and stopped preaching the gospel. What a tremendous lesson we need to learn in the United States of America today where arrogance and fear and intimidation are out of control against people of faith where God's solution is still the same. If you're truly a believer, you have the Holy Spirit And you too can respond in the face of persecution the way the disciples did. Not just Paul, the apostle. This is all of the disciples. The truth is that this is how they responded. In the face of persecution, verse 52, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Later, this apostle Paul would write the book of Philippians while he was under house arrest for about two years. Now, God has a tremendous sense of humor. It was during that time when Paul, this same individual, who's central to what we're reading in Acts chapter 13, was put under house arrest after being given the calling of God to go into all the world and preach the gospel and plant churches. Well, how can he do that if he's under house arrest? Can't get out there and press the flesh with people face to face, it's kind of hard to plant churches if you're under house arrest for two years. It was during that very time that God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, caused Paul to write the book of Philippians. And you know what Philippians is? It is a manual for how to be filled with joy in the midst of perplexity and hardship and unforeseen circumstances. It is just like God to get the last laugh, just like Almighty God. 
the disciples were filled with joy in the midst of persecution because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, here comes part two. In a crash course, I have read that passage of scripture. You can go back and you can get as heady as you want to be with Paul's first missionary journey and where they went and why they went here, where it is in regard to Asia Minor and what this city was and what that city was. You can get into all that stuff and I encourage you to do it. But here's what I want you to walk away with. When somebody is truly saved and truly filled with the Holy Spirit, you follow Jesus. When you're truly saved and you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, you adjust your life to the mission, the vision of Almighty God. You get busy for Jesus. This is Saul who becomes the apostle, Paul, who is filled with the Holy Spirit and the Great Commission was true for him. It's true for all the disciples then and there. It's true for all of us here and now. You can look at Romans chapter one, verse 16, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of God. It is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. You can look at Romans chapter 9, the first five verses. You can look at Romans chapter 10, the first three verses, and you can see Paul's burden for the Jewish people. We would do well today to have a burden for the Jewish people. Why is it that Paul, who was called to have a primary ministry to the non-Jews, was preaching in the synagogues? Because the gospel is for the Jew first and also the Gentile. We not Jews are grafted in. It's the Jew first. God's not done with the Jewish people. The Jewish people are important to him. In fact, I'm going to read for you. I'm going to read for you Romans chapter 9, those first few verses, because we need to get this into our DNA when it comes to having a concern for all people, beginning with the Jews. So Paul is preaching in the synagogue. He starts there, and then it overflows into the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Who's writing this? Paul. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants. He's referring to the Old Testament, the giving of the law, all this foundational stuff that leads to Jesus, the worship and the promises to them belong the patriarchs Abraham and Isaac and David etc etc and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ who is God over all blessed forever amen Romans chapter 10 verses 1 through 4 brothers my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved the Jewish people for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to the knowledge Saul, who became Paul, knew what it was like to have a zeal for God without a knowledge of Jesus as the Savior. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness, for Christ is the end of the law. The road of the Old Testament leads to the feet of Jesus. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So it's important to understand that if you're truly saved and truly filled with the Holy Spirit, you will embrace the mission of Almighty God. You will have the heart of Almighty God for other people to come to know Jesus as the Savior that you know. You want other people 
to be convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. You want other people to be free from their sin just as you have been freed from your sin, not by anything you've done, not by anything you could do, but by faith in what Jesus did, by faith in who Jesus is, the rescuer, the savior, the redeemer, our friend. And so Paul is a wonderful example of when you get saved, when you get filled with the Holy Spirit, you embrace the mission of Almighty God, you get busy, and that all of your life now begins to revolve around this overarching purpose to lead other people to the feet of Jesus so that they too can be saved from all of their sins. Paul had a heart for the lost. He cared about people who were in bondage to their sin, to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And he preached this great news of salvation and forgiveness of sin found in Jesus. The one prophesied about repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. He's a great example for us today in this 21st century of what a true believer, truly filled with the Holy Spirit, looks like in the daily ins and outs of life. He is all in for the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants other people to be all in as well. His entire life is revolving around the Lord Jesus and his vision and his mission for anybody and everybody, whether they're Jew or Gentile, no matter who they are, he understood that they needed Jesus as their savior. And his life was fully invested in Jesus and his mission. It's not possible to accept Jesus as your savior and to be unconcerned about Jesus' mission. Now, hear me out on this. There's nobody who gets saved initially and even for a length of time, who understands everything about Jesus. You, you won't understand everything about Jesus and everything that is wrapped up in Jesus until you pass from this life and stand before him and see him face to face, which is an eventuality for all of us. So none of us fully understands everything about Jesus the moment we accept Christ as our savior or a year later or two years later or three years later or five years later or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years if you should live that long or 40 years. There's this idea of progressively coming to understand more and more the things that we have in Christ and what God has called us to and first and foremost, who God has called us to, which is the person of Jesus, to be devoted to him, to be surrendered to him, to be worshiping him in every single area of our life with the material goods that we have, with the financial resources that we have, whether it's in plenty or whether it's in lacking, whether it's in good times or whether it's in bad times, nothing can separate us from the love of God that's found in Jesus. And here we have a great example of somebody who was the most unlikely candidate, a murderer and a blasphemer, somebody who was persecuting the church, gets knocked on his bum, filled with the Holy Spirit, saved, and then embraces the mission that he was opposing and has a deep, burning burden for the lost. When you're truly saved and you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, you too will have a deep, burning burden for the lost. Do you care about your neighbors? Do you care about your coworkers? Do you care about people you might bump into in the course of coming to church? Don't think that just because somebody comes to church, that means that they're automatically saved. Amen. In fact, one of the places where the devil's most active is actually in the church. It's a great opportunity to lead people who want to know the truth into falsehood and to deceive and take many astray.
So if you're a true believer and you're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the ways that you can tell is whether or not you're fully invested in the mission of God. I don't know about you, but most of us can adjust our lives a little bit more, in some instances, a lot more, to the mission of Jesus and to make it more central to everything that we're doing and the overflow of the one that we know. If you're really a follower of Jesus Christ, there will be a holy discontentedness where you're not satisfied with where you are right now. And your answer to Jesus is, Lord, I want to follow you even more closely. Lord, I want to be into you and in with you more closely than ever before. If you've embraced apathy and you're resting on your laurels of what God did in your past, you're missing the most golden opportunity right now in your present to be fully invested as a follower of Jesus. And when you're a real believer and you're really filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be fully invested in the mission, the calling of Almighty God. You notice how Paul, the apostle, he is very knowledgeable of the scriptures. He's pulling scriptures out left and right from Psalms and Isaiah, scriptures that we wouldn't even understand as being strung together the way he weaves them as this beautiful tapestry. And he alludes to 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Davidic covenant is found. Why is it that he says, hey, Jesus is a descendant of David and God promised that? What's the significance of that? Well, turn with me here to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and you'll see for yourself verse 12 where God is speaking through the prophet Nathan as we see in the Old Testament, God would speak through a prophet. Saul had Samuel, David had Nathan. And here God is speaking to David and saying, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, in other words, when you're dead, I'll raise up your offspring, your descendants after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. This is the Davidic covenant, an important passage of scripture, 2 Samuel chapter seven. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now here's an example of scripture where there's a back and forth action where the writer is speaking about events in his day and then events beyond the day of the people who are hearing it. And this is a reference to Solomon who would be the immediate fulfillment building a house. Remember Solomon built the first temple But the house that God is talking about, ultimately speaking, in Christ is Jew and Gentile, the body of Christ, the church. So there's a right then and right there aspect of this prophecy fulfilled in Solomon with the literal temple in Jerusalem. And then there is a future looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment found in Christ. And this is why it says, When he commits iniquity, reference to Solomon, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. That's a reference to Solomon. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, whose house? The house of David. And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. And so... This is the Davidic covenant that's being presented here with great clarity, with great clarity. Paul is going to all this detail to help people understand. Remember, he's in the synagogue and he's preaching to Jewish people who would be familiar with this mindset of waiting for the promised Messiah. 
spoken of in the Old Testament. So Saul, who is Paul, is helping them connect the dots and understand that, you know, all that talk about the Davidic covenant and how God would establish his throne, his kingdom on this earth through a descendant of David? Well, guess what? That is fulfilled in Jesus. And that's why when we get to Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, they go through so much detail going through in the very beginning of this thing called the genealogy the ancestry of Jesus to show that he's a descendant from Abraham, Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant, and he's a descendant of David, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel chapter seven, that God means what he says, says what he means, delivers what he promises. Now, why is that important for you and me? It's important because you can trust that if God has promised you something in the word of God, if God has made a promise about something and it is not yet fulfilled, your trust and your hope and your calm and your peace is wrapped up in the truthfulness of God, the identity, the unchanging nature of God. And this is what Paul is presenting to the Jews in the synagogue who would be familiar with the Old Testament as he was familiar with the Old Testament, that they could put their hope in God, that Jesus is the promised one, the anointed and the appointed. Have you noticed how Paul has such an in-depth knowledge of the scriptures? When you're truly saved and filled with the Holy Spirit, you will marinate yourself in the word of God, the scriptures, to such a degree that they ooze out of you. And you can share the gospel with people who are lost. That's what a spirit-filled, saved person does. If you're not sharing the good news of the gospel, with your neighbors, with your coworkers, with your family, if you're not doing that, it simply means one thing. You're out of the word of God. That's why you don't have the heart of God, the burden of God, the passion of God. You're out of alignment with the mission of God and you will allow yourself, you will have allowed yourself to be distracted by far lesser things. There is nothing more significant in your life than truly following Jesus, embracing the mission of Jesus, and sharing the great news of the gospel found in the word of God. He's given us a playbook. You're seeing Paul execute the playbook masterfully because he's a real believer filled with the Holy Spirit. You need to spend time on a regular basis, on a daily basis. You might miss a day here, a day there, but on a daily, regular basis, you should be marinating in the word of God, saturating yourself with the word of God, sitting at the feet of Jesus, being familiar with the teachings of the Bible so that when an opportunity comes up at the workplace because you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you're bold like the disciples were, not cowering, you're able to share what Jesus is teaching you about himself because you've been sitting at his feet. You see, if you want to sit at the feet of Jesus, you marinate in the word of God. A real believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit is invested in the mission of God and immersed in the word of God. And when you are, the mission of God overflows into all the areas of your life. You use your money to advance that mission. You use your time to advance that mission. You use your relationships to advance that mission. You consider others better than yourself as the apostle Paul did. I wish that I would be accursed. If that would mean that my Jewish brothers and sisters would be saved, I would rather spend an eternity. You want to talk about a passion for God 
and a passion for the lost. That's what he's saying in the book of Romans. If it were possible for me to take their place, if that meant that they would be saved, but he knew it's not possible for a human being to take the place of another. The only one who could take the place satisfactorily is Jesus, the God-man, fully God, fully man. But we need to know the playbook. To sit at the feet of Jesus is to sit with the word of God and to get a steady diet to discipline yourself. I don't know what it might be that could be distracting you from time in God's word, but I can guarantee you, you're gonna come to a day where you're going to regret whatever it is, whatever it was, that you thought, for however long it might have been, was more important than sitting at the feet of Jesus. And I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. Imagine that. There's a popular best-selling book out right now. It's entitled Jesus Calling. Many of you have that book because it's a bestseller. I respect the author. I appreciate the author's intentions. However, when somebody tries to write in a first-person narrative the voice of God, the words of God, it makes me uneasy. And it should make you uneasy too. Because they are doing something that is reserved only for the writers of scripture. The scriptures say, I will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses the name of the Lord your God. You shall not misuse or use in vain Use flippantly the name of the Lord your God. To use the name of Jesus, who is God in the flesh, and to write in the first person as if he were speaking to you personally is something that is reserved only for the writers of Scripture in the 66 books of the Bible. You say, well, it ministers to me. Well, of course it ministers to you to a certain degree because it's based on Scripture. But why do you want to go second or third hand, get away from the Scriptures when you can go right to the Word of God and get the black and white, forget about the gray, go right to the Word of God, the Bible. Sit at the feet of Jesus, marinate in His Word, and hear it straight from Him, straight from His mouth to your ears, to your heart. That's Jesus' calling. Jesus is calling you through his word. And when you spend time in the word of God, you'll have the heart of God, the mission of God, the vision of God, the passion of God. You'll join him and adjust your life. And God will use you in a way that we see God using the apostle Paul. He's not the exception, he's the example. Yet you may say, well, he's an apostle. Of course he was. But he's the example of what a real believer filled with the Holy Spirit does. Eventually, you will lead people to Jesus in salvation. Look with me. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of God, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. If you are a real believer filled with the Holy Spirit, and you are immersing yourself in the word of God, and making the mission of God central to your entire life, it is only a matter of time before you lead somebody to Jesus. Can't help but do that. But if you allow yourself to be distracted from lesser things, if you're not marinating in the word of God, if you're not truly following the Lord the way a true believer follows the Lord and adjusts their life, and you're missing golden opportunities with your coworkers and your neighbors and people you interact with your family members on a day in and day out basis. 
See, God is the one who was at work in the Apostle Paul. God is the one who is at work in your life. A real believer who is filled with the Holy Spirit adjusts his or her life to the mission of God. You immerse yourself in the Word of God and you share the Word of God with other people. It's the Word of God that has the power, the Spirit of God that has the power. God knows that you don't have the power. You're not in the natural persuasive enough, but God, with this two-edged sword that's sharper than a two-edged sword, the Word of God has power. And you don't need to be ashamed to share the words of eternal life that people need. When you're a true believer and you're filled with the Spirit of God and you're immersed in the Word of God and you're involved in the mission of God, it's central to your life, and you're sharing the Word of God and people are getting saved, you know what's going to happen? The same thing that happened to the Apostle Paul and to Barnabas as examples for you and me today. You will be persecuted. Look what it says. Verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of the district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. If you are a real believer filled with the Holy Spirit, sharing the gospel, fully immersed in the mission of God, you're going to be persecuted, but you're also going to be filled with joy. And you won't care about the opinions of people because the Spirit of God will give you what the world cannot give you, a joy in the face of persecution. Can somebody shout amen Amen. for that? I think for too long we have allowed ourselves in the body of Christ, and it's time for the sleeping giant to arise. See, one of the biggest obstacles in your life is the biggest obstacle in my life, me. You are your own worst enemy. We talk ourselves into situations that are bigger than they really are. We think, well, if I say that at work, this might happen. If I say that to my family, listen, if Paul could give us the example as a true believer filled with the Spirit of God, what it looks like to preach the gospel. What does it look like to follow Jesus? This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. You invest yourself in Jesus. You're committed to the mission of Jesus. You immerse yourself in the word of God to the point where it begins to ooze out and overflow into other relationships you have. You can't keep this thing down. Eventually, other people are going to get saved because you're a real believer and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. You're aligned with the mission of Jesus. And you know what? Persecution is going to come because there are always flies in the ointment, but a real believer is filled with joy because you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit and not also be filled with joy. So who cares what the world thinks? Who cares what people think? You're not going to appear before the judgment seat of your neighbor or your family or your mother, your father, your children, your brothers, your sisters, your pastor, your elders, or your church. You're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that same Jesus, that same Jesus is the one who gives you and me, the moment we give our lives to Christ, the filling with the Holy Spirit that makes us bold when we would otherwise be cowards. Let's give it up for that Lord and that Savior. Amen. been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. You can also invite Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.